Today, we're having a conversation about mental health, and I'm aware that this conversation might be a little triggering for some people to listen to. If you need some additional support, you can check out the numbers in the show notes. There was once this belief that there's our personal life and our work life, and never the two shall meet. But what we know now is that the line between personal and work is more intertwined than ever before. And as a leader, the solution is never to tell people to just leave their issues at home or to harden up. As leaders, it can feel really hard to know what to do when people on our team need some extra support. So my guest is Mark Butler, and he believes that prevention is better than reaction. And we're getting together to have a conversation about what that really looks like. Mark Butler is an accredited clinical psychotherapist with 25 years corporate experience and 15 years clinical experience in the field, with a particular focus on workplace burnout, stress and anxiety and related unhealthy coping behaviours. From his work as a clinical director developing programs for the most deeply affected populations, Mark understands burnout and executive exhaustion so well. He sees the need to shift from being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff to being the fence at the top of the cliff working with organizations to be proactive in preventing issues from becoming problems. Mark's knowledge and experience has underpinned his drive and passion for pursuing effective recovery and resilience programs to get employees back on track and performing at their optimum level. And his practice is built around belonging and our primal human need to feel safe. Mark, it's such a delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Thank you very much, Shane. Lovely to be here. I feel like it is only appropriate that I have you on the show considering that we've both sung karaoke together uh, because that is you can't karaoke together and not come on phone calls with clever people so it's 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 appropriate that you're here <laughs> I th- and it's probably about time then yeah <laughs> it is about time the thing is and and look we'll, we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll find a way to touch on the music component of you when when I go to karaoke my expectations are that the people I'm in the room with are not good but you were very good because you are a musician and that was a hard part to come to terms with because you're supposed to scream into a microphone at karaoke and not be very good, but you are very good. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. I was saying the same about you. Oh, I was waiting for that. There was definitely fishing for that compliment, um, but I appreciate that. One of the, the, the ways that I kick off the podcast is to ask three fast facts. And the three fast facts are, where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Wow. Uh, So I was born in Cork in Ireland many, many years ago in the 60s. What was my first job? I think it was like working in a bar. Um, You were able to do that at a very young age back in my day, which also sort of tended to start your drinking career very, very young as well. Uh, What was the third one? Uh, What do you do now? What's kind of in your words? What's what's this whole thing that you do right now? This whole thing that I do now. I'm a mental health expert. The, the, The term sort of expert sits a little uncomfortable uncomfortably with me sometimes but but it really is just given my experience both in the clinical and in the corporate space it's given me this kind of unique edge that allows me to uh, so I work with high performing teams fast moving high performing teams as a as a performance coach in sort of delivering the kind of exceptional results that we that we need from each of those teams and I do that on a continual basis and that's often fed by my experience of working with teams who work in extreme environments and conditions like veterans, 
uh, military, first responders, et cetera. So, so it kind of made sense that that's where I'd end up. You are absolutely an expert in this space. I, I know every conversation I have with you and have had with you over the years has been one of those conversations. And, and that's kind of where this podcast came from was when you talk to someone, sometimes you have those conversations, you look back and you go, oh, I wish that was recorded for other people to hear. And that was what kind of birthed this whole podcast. And you are one of those people that I talk to and I go, oh, I wish other people could have heard that conversation. Let's kind of go back a little bit because I would, I would love to understand. You said a lot of what you do now has been formed and shaped through your background and experience. For people who are just learning about you, give us a bit of a snapshot of what that experience has looked like that led you to, do, to doing what you do now. Worked in the corporate space for both international organizations in film and television area and for sort of local, smaller, independent uh, producers and developers as well. So I've worked in, in that space. It's a high pressure, intense sort of environment, uh, highly competitive. I experienced my first um, burnout sort of in that sort of space, if you like. That prompted me to sort of explore, surely there's more to life than just this kind of corporate thuggery and one-upmanship and trying to get the best of everybody all the time. It's, it's a bit sort of doggy dog. And uh, there's got to be more to life than this. And, and so I started studying mental health, which was also to try and understand what happened to me when I burned out. Uh, so I did that as a sort of a hobby. And I kind of just followed my nose and then looked up one day and I had two master's degrees and some other sort of qualifications. And sort of 10 years had passed. And, and I found myself, I, I sometimes explain to people now and I say, I have 25 years corporate experience and about 15 years in that clinical space. And I see people adding it up. So they're like, geez, he's not too bad for 75. But, but I'm not, they, they actually ran side by side, which was, <laughs> which was, I, you know, I was blessed to be able to do it because it gave me a brilliant uh, sense of purpose alongside a sort of a, a career that I was developing, etc. In doing that, I wasn't interested in what they used to call the worried well, you know. And so when I had to sort of get my, my sort of experience and hours up in, in the clinical space, I gravitated towards those populations that needed to transform, not just change, right? So I'm talking about, I, I kind of cut my teeth in the long-term rehab sort of recovery people who were homeless and had lost everything were in rehab for sort of 12 months or whatever and i just i found the human spirit and, and the desire and capacity to transform oneself from what one was to what one really wants to be hugely motivating and and also kind of humbling at the same time but i moved then from sort of that space to byron bay where i was kind of working still in the sort of film and television space but I segued out of that and more full time into the sort of treatment and uh, space because I started working in developing treatment programs for veterans with post-traumatic stress and substance use. And again, some of whom were kind of homeless, etc. My experience of what they were going through and the sort of support that we were giving them or lack thereof just because we didn't have the right sort of tools in place. I embarked on a, that was probably about a four or five year program of developing treatment practices and strategies and processes and modalities for that sort of population. And then from there, kind of once that was sort of done, I then I was the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff for most of my career in that space, watching the same things happening over and over and over to the same sort of populations. And I just realized we, we need to get better at this. We need to be a fence at the top or a wind at the top of the cliff stopping people from falling over. And I realized that we don't do prevention very well in Australia. The health budget, 1.34% at the last time it was measured, 1.34% 
of the health budget in Australia is spent on prevention, which is about a half to a third of comparable countries like New Zealand and the UK and, and Canada, etc., even the US. But at the same time, the global sort of expenditure on mental health in, in the health budgets is generally about 2%, even though it represents about 14% of the burden of disease. But in Australia, it's about 7.5% of our health budget. So we're very good at the treatment. We still can be better, but we're better than most at uh, investing in treatment, but not enough investing in prevention. And I just looked at that model and I said 1.34% is very, very small. What are businesses spending? And it was even less, right? So I just thought we got to do this better. And legally, we now have to anyway with the introduction of new legislation that's come in this year where we have to be in the prevention space to prevent what they're calling psychosocial hazards from sort of locking in. So that's kind of been my journey from the ambulance. And I still do that. I'm still the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff when I'm dealing with teams if there's ex excessive amounts of burnout or coaching leaders or something like that. But what I like being is the fence at the top, getting the best out of people who are already getting the best from themselves. What's the, the particular reason why we put so much emphasis on away from prevention and onto reaction. Is there a particular reason why that's so disproportionate? You mean from the health perspective in Australia? We'd probably end up having a politics conversation that I'm, I'm neither qualified to and, and probably shouldn't go too far down. But I, I, you know, I think it's, it's a, a population, mental health in particular, you know, there's, there's very few mental health sort of conditions that actually shorten your lifespan. Your lifestyle choices around coping with them will shorten them. So, you know, addiction, substance use, etc. Or, or schizophrenia in particular can create some very, very un unhealthy sort of coping mechanisms or strategies and lifestyle choices. But mental health like anxiety and depression, etc. You can live to 100 years with them. They're not going to shorten your lifespan. But the sort of at-risk populations like that probably aren't the biggest sort of vote earners. And therefore, we'll deal with them as they come up and we we'll look like heroes because we're doing that. But in terms of preventing it, not so much. I'm re really running a red line here now around sort of having a politics conversation. But I think anybody in that space will say, and any of my colleagues and peers who've been in that treatment space will say, we're just not investing enough in a broad enough range of treatments. Anyone who's got young people right now who are struggling with mental health issues, you know, you've got some very good services like Headspace, etc. But there's nothing between that sort of mild and that sort of hospitalization. Even things like eating disorders, etc. We're just not doing enough to prevent or early intervene. Yeah, I mean, the thing that came to my mind, especially not just from a political perspective, but also an organizational perspective, because I, I would imagine based on my experience, and I'm sure from what you've seen as well, even in organizations, we, we do a lot more reactive responses. So we've got our EAP for people who, oh, okay, they, they, they need some support. So let's kind of get them some support as opposed to the preventative things that we do. I think we, we, we genuinely try to, but I wonder if there was, if there is this burning platform that, that makes it almost all of a sudden feel more real. So when someone does have an outburst at work and there's a, an, a strong expression of emotions that is the consequence of sustained pressure over time. We go, oh, now there's a problem because there's been this emotional outburst. Now, how do we solve that problem? But it was like the problem was there the whole time, but invisible and not spoken about that then just created a burning platform. Would that be a contributing factor to that? Absolutely. I think it is. And in fact, for the first time ever, we, we actually have five generations in the workforce now. You know, it's not going to last much longer. 
and it'll be back to sort of four. But for a long, long time, and, and I still see leaders in that sort of space where teaspoon of cement and harden up, you know, leave your problems at home, uh, you're here to work. There's still elements of that. It, thankfully, it's disappearing, but there's still sort of elements of that. And, and then there was also the stigma around, you know, we don't talk about stuff like this, or I don't know what to say. If, and if I say something, will they become a burden on me? That's a myth. It never happens. But I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. Quite possibly, if you try and tell them what to do to get better, it's not your job. You're not qualified. So there, there, there are sort of things that we do that make us fear reaching out for sort of help. So stigma around mental health since COVID has shifted dramatically. And I think so now it's much easier to have a conversation about that. And I think as a result of that, there's a bit of a pendulum swing when people are now sort of starting to speak about it more. We think there's an avalanche of mental health issues. We're just talking about them. I, and, and I think because of that sort of stigma and because of that, I'm afraid to, of what to say, coupled with this idea that leaders feel, I have an open door. You know, we have drinks on a Friday. We have lunch on a Wednesday. My team know they can talk to me about anything. And, you know, you can't tell where I end and the team begins. That's a red flag whenever I see that. Because what it generally means is that team don't want to let the side down or they don't want to disappoint their leader. So they actually don't say anything. So the assumption that I'm close enough that we can have a talk about anything is a dangerous assumption to make. And, and therefore that can stop conversations as well. So I think we're getting better at it. But I, but I also think putting band-aids on it is not actually the answer as well. There's a, there's a systemic sort of fundamental cultural change has to occur. And it's, I, I believe it started. It's already that there's a willingness there, I think. No, we just got to get, got to get better at doing it. And then along comes this, the, the new legislation around domestic and family violence. Don't know if you're aware of it or not, or if, or if any of our, our, our viewers or listeners will be aware. But organizations now need to provide up to 10 days sort of paid leave for people who are experiencing domestic or family violence, which is new legislation now. So it's, it's now very much seen that, that domestic and family violence is a workplace issue. And it most certainly can be if the perpetrator follows their partner to work or something like that. Suddenly the receptionist has to be security as well, not geared for that. Stigma around talking about domestic and family violence, I think, is as bad as the mental health ever was and is worse than the mental health stigma is currently today. We really don't know what to say beyond why don't you leave? Why should the, why should, and it's mostly females, let's admit it, right? Let's call it what it is. There are male sort of victims and I'm not a fan of that word because it disempowers people, but there are sort of male victims of domestic violence as well, but predominantly it's female. And so, that, you know, there's lots of conversations come up with that. Why should the female have to leave when they've got kids? The number one cause of homelessness today is domestic violence issues. Why do we wait for violence? Why are we waiting for bruises? Domestic aggression is enough. So, so this is going to start a whole new conversation and it's very new. And leaders and organizations are going to have to get comfortable about it, having the conversations and knowing what to say. That's an interesting kind of way of framing that because leaders are going to need to get comfortable with it, being uncomfortable in those conversations. Because I don't know that a conversation like that, if you have someone in your team who comes to you and says, I'm currently going through a moment or a, a period of time with the family domestic violence and we need some support that a leader is going to sit there and comfortably be able to go, oh, sure, cool, let me, let me help you work you through that or walk you through that, support you through that. I don't know that that's a comfortable conversation people are having right now. No, I don't think it is. And, and it's very much the same around mental health and mental ill health as well. Leaders 
we're kind of trained to knowing, having the answers when somebody comes to us. And this is one of those times when absolutely you don't. And whenever I'm working with leaders, even in high performing teams or in, in a leader who is, who is kind of battling their own sort of uh, challenges, whenever I'm having conversations with them, I, I said, this is the one time when you're not really expected to have the answers. And, and if ever I was to get a tattoo, it would say, ask, don't tell. When you create that sort of freedom for leaders to go, OK, look, I don't know what to do in this situation, but I'm, I'm in your corner. Let's find out is worth so much more than, well, why don't you just leave them? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Why don't you do this or why don't you try that sort of thing? Because particularly with domestic violence, we're in this conversation now, we may as well, particularly with that, and I've spoken with police who deal with it on a daily basis as well, and I've often asked, have you tried telling them to leave a partner? And they go, yeah. Have they ever left? Not once. And so what happens next is the, the shame of, I should have listened and I didn't, sits there and prevents them from reaching out again. And, and that will happen if we give somebody bad advice. The story I like to tell around this is last year, our house was damaged in the floods. We lost the sort of, we lost the house. We're just kind of back in. But at the same time, I had, I had pneumonia and, and, and a partially collapsed lung. And the number of people that told me to have some garlic and vitamin C to sort of get better, <laughs> if one more person told me, I was going to take a swing at them. They mean very, very well, but it's utterly useless information to me. And I just had to kind of smile there and just say, oh, yeah, thanks, I'll try it. And it's the same thing with leaders who try and help when they're not qualified to do so. It can create that sort of, we might lose the one chance we had to sort of talk to them. So, so yeah, leaders are going to be finding themselves in these conversations more. So it's a question of our, around how can they be supportive and create that safety. It's about sort of creating safety and that sense of belonging and connection that we all absolutely have to have. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing from this conversation today is that I think when we think about areas like mental health, like family and domestic violence, some of these big, big topics within society right now, these are not, I don't know, there was this sense that it was like they sit over here and work sits over here and the two don't meet and I think what we're seeing more than ever before is a, a blurring of our home and our work life, which now leaders find themselves thrust into a conversation that they are not ready for, they're not prepared for. And as a result, it's much easier to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, and we can't do that. And, or it's either I pretend that it doesn't exist, or I try to pretend that I know everything and I know what should be done. And neither of those responses helpful responses from this and so there's the you know there's an element of our own being vulnerable enough to say look i don't know what to say to you that is going to sort of help you beyond letting you know that you're not alone and you can sort of you know we can provide sort of some sense of familiarity and safety for you to empower you to do the, the sort of work yourself it reminds me actually there's about 80 years of research into what they call the efficacy or the sort of the, the efficiency of somebody recovering from a mental health illness uh, or a mental health challenge. And, and so for the last 80 years, the people have looked at what is it, what are the factors that contribute to recovery in, in an effort to sort of find the best solutions, if you like. And they've kind of all boiled down into sort of four areas that I like to sort of talk about. And I'll share them here. If you can picture a pie chart in front of me, 40% of the likelihood of somebody getting better is based on the community support that they've got. So in other words, 
the sort of, you know, the support from their family and their friends and, and, and colleagues and the leader in the workplace, if you like. So that environment that they're in, if that's supportive, they're 40% of the way there. 30% is based on the sense of hope that they can get better. And interestingly, that 30%, of course, is going to be influenced by the community support they've got. Yeah. So if they know they're safe, then they're going to have a sense that maybe this isn't all sort of meaningless and pointless. So, so that sense of hope can be improved by the community spirit. So these aren't sort of cast in stone percentages, but they're, they're reflective. Then 15% comes down to a, the sort of relationship that they have with their carer, their psychiatrist, the psychologist, the GP, the caseworker, you know, the, the person like me in their lives that, that's there to sort of support their recovery. And then 15% is based around about the type of treatment that they get whether, you know, cognitive behavior therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy or hypnotherapy or electroconvulsive therapy or equine therapy, whatever the type of treatment is, including medication, will be will represent about 15% of that. Now, there was a show on Netflix, and of course the name escapes me when I need it, but it was uh, Jonah, jo Jonah Hill's psychiatrist, I think it was. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yes, that's the one. That's the one. That's it. Now, now, his psychiatrist made a really interesting point. I don't know, was it anecdotal or did he have the sort of uh, research to back it up? But he was saying that sort of 75%, I think it was, of the treatment people receive in early recovery is going to be based on the lifestyle choices they make to look after themselves. So I talk about radical self-care in my new book, and that's what I'm talking about. So if you put that into my little pie chart, you'd find that the type of treatment that people receive is worth, you know, it's a, a single digit percentages, right? But whenever I'm at a conference or whenever I'm talking with big groups, I ask that question, how much do you think it, the treatment is? And most people say about 80% and they go, yeah, less than 10, probably. But I say, now you as a leader, you can, if you look at that pie chart, add the 40% of the com community support, add the 30% of the sense of hope, a leader can influence as much as 70% of the likelihood of somebody getting better. And now if you came at it from the other way, responding perfectly to treatment with the best relationship with their therapist and full of hope doesn't even meet that same sort of level of percentage. So when I say as a leader, you could influence 70% of the likelihood of someone getting better. We haven't even talked about therapy or treatment or, or anything like that yet, but you can influence that much. And then I was delighted to see some research came out very recently that said leaders can inter er, it can influence people's mental well-being as much as a partner and certainly more than a, than a GP or more than a, the clinician can do. So it's borne out by that again. So, so when I say to leaders, you don't need to know what to do or what to tell them to do. You don't need to have the answers for their sort of treatment or recovery. But if you empower them, and you create the safety for them to be, it's okay to not be okay for a while. If you can do that, they're 70% of the way there. And you've influenced as much as that of 70% of that. It's very liberating when you hear that. Yeah. Can I check that I'm hearing this right? Because that thought alone is, is quite profound. So you're saying that the, the relationship that a person has, so let's think, think of that through the perspective of a leader. Someone's in your team who's having some kind of mental health challenge. 30% of their recovery is going to come down to the kind of treatment that they have and their relationship, let's say, with their therapist. Let's let's kind of use as broad as that. And 70% of it's going to come from their personal sense of, do I have hope for the future that tomorrow can get better than today? And do I have a supportive community around me that 
it builds my strengths of relationship. 70% of that impact is going to come from that relationship. It com comes down from the sense of safety and support that they've got from their sort of environment and the sense of hope that that safety gives them, gives them the sense of hope that they can get better. Now, the sense of hope then, of course, if they do follow the treatment is going to you know, be influenced by their sort of clinician as well. So that 30% that can sort of vary between leader partner versus the clinician. And as I was just sharing with you, that that sense of sort of support, if you like, is greater from the leadership sort of side. They have as much influence as a partner, more than a clinician. But in terms of what they can do to create that sense of safety and belonging and connection that we all crave, they can influence as much as 70%. So, yeah, you're right. That's that's what I was saying. This is not our way of saying, <laughs> oh, don't even worry about therapy or the client relationship. Just go to your leader now. No, that's not what we're saying. Now, that's not yeah. what we're saying, people who are listening. Very clear. Because I, as, as I, I think we, we understand the importance and the value of therapy. Yes. But leaders, leaders need to understand that you don't have to have the answers for them to get better. That's the first point. And so just by being available and, and creating that sense of safety for them is going to be more valuable to them. Because sometimes, I don't know what you feel like, but for someone who's not a trained therapist, someone who doesn't have that experience, if you're a leader of a team and you've got someone on your team who's struggling with and a mental health challenge or some kind of difficulty, there is this feeling of, of feeling very powerless of like, I, I want to help them, but I don't know how I can help them. But what you're saying is like, you actually have some really simple things you do. A, don't pretend like you have all the answers, create that space of safety, connection to that community, that reinstilling and belief and confidence that tomorrow can be better than today. They're all things that any single person could do. And, and, and you don't need to even look for the symptoms that you think somebody might be struggling with. Because when you start doing that, and, and sometimes uh, people, you know, some training programs for leaders are, these are the symptoms that you're likely to see in someone who's burning out. These are the symptoms you'll see in somebody who's uh, anxious. And, and I've done it myself. I've trained people to sort of just be mindful that this is what you might be seeing. But I'm always cautious to say, don't go looking for this stuff because you're not qualified. And by the time an outsider or a lay person sees the symptoms, it's because the person can't mask them anymore. We're back into that reactive space again we were just talking about. So, you know, slam the door, the horse is bolted. And, and what we really need to do is get to the space where happy horses won't bolt because they're going to feel safe in the field. So don't look for symptoms that you're not qualified to look for. Look for the outcomes. And leaders are trained in this. This is a empathy and emotional intelligence. Again, born with it, sometimes lose it. But we can gain it back with just some sort of self-awareness and, and, and other awareness, if you like. So I work with leaders and, and particularly high-performing teams. Don't wait for the symptoms that, that you're, you're expecting to see because it'll all be entrenched. But every leader should be looking at performance of their team. And, and if you're talking about burnout as an example, it's one of the first things you'll notice. Emotional exhaustion and that sort of lack of ability to do our best work. These are the kind of first things you'll see in burnout. So a leader should be looking for that and would be on an ongoing basis anyway. So just having a keen eye on people who, you know, were usually reliable and starting to miss deadlines or not speaking up in meetings or, you know, some there's some kind of performance like that. And I've been, I've been asked, what's the formula for performance? And I say it's productivity times engagement over belonging. And I think if you don't have the belonging bit in there, then it's not really a team performance you're looking at. It's individuals. Then if you're starting to see mental health issues, you'll see the people's passion start to disappear. 
or the sense of purpose that they've got. Uh, you'll start to notice they used to talk about the kids' sports on a Saturday and they're just that's not even coming up in conversation anymore. Or the long bike ride they go on a Saturday morning with their mates or whatever it is. When people stop talking about stuff like that and sort of engaging with everybody, you'll notice that before you start looking for symptoms of anxiety. And the other symptoms anyway, like you know, lack of sleep, etc. Unless you're sitting at the foot of their bed, you're not going to see it. So don't go looking for it. You're not trained to anyway. Uh, you know, and then things like how people present and how they're showing up, you know, uh, how they're participating with each other and with, with the team. That's the stuff a leader can look for. And those are outcomes that we need to get sort of on the front foot about. If you're, if you're waiting to see symptoms, you might not see them because we're very good at masking them. Just ask anybody who's working in the suicide space. We're very, very good at hiding this stuff. So just start looking at sort of the outcomes of how they interrelate with other people, because that'll tell you what their sense of belonging is like. So, yeah. And look, I'm a clinician, right? I'm trained in all of this. And people will say to me, just tell me what to do to get better. And I'll, I, I don't. I'll, I will say, well, let's have a look at your options. What's happening? What's going on? Let's kind of explore your surroundings and what's going on for you. I won't tell them what to do to get better because they'll forget. And, and when they really need it, they'll have moved on to sort of, you know, something else. One of my favorite quotes is from that movie with Jonah Hill and, and, and watching starts. I think one of the, the this, this phrases he says to his, his therapist, he says, we come to our therapist for advice and we go to our, our friends for support. And he said, but when we go to our friends, our friends give us advice and our therapist gives us support. And he said, it just feels so backwards. He's like, I can go to any one of my friends and they'll tell me what to do. And I don't want them to tell me what them to do. I just want them to support me. And then I go to my therapist and I'm like, tell me how I should get better. And they don't tell me how I should get better. They just support me. <laughs> and, and yes, it's true. Uh, I, 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 males, we're a bit more guilty of sort of coming up with a solution because we feel we should or we see it or something like that. And it's not always uh, what's needed. So, as I'm, so I'm hearing you talk about like as a leader of a team, being aware that you don't have to be that person who knows everything, has all the answers, but you create that safety within your team. You create that community and that sense of belonging. And then... Don't go looking for the symptoms of the the mental health challenges. So like our stress, anxiety, those kinds of things. We are looking at performance measures within our team and going, okay, where are some of these performance measures slipping? And how do I start to get things in place that support us as in a preventative thing rather than a reactive that when we do get down the track and people start burning out, it's, you know, start getting um, overwhelmed by stress and anxiety. So you're not looking for the symptoms, but you are looking for indicators of performance that have shifted. Let's say you do notice some performance shifts. So for example, our team meetings are, are not productive, that we're not, not everyone's sharing this. There's this sense of like people are not contributing to meetings anymore. Goals, deadlines are being pushed and, you know, people are saying, oh, I've got too much work on my plate. There's all these kinds of things. Where do you start as a leader to start implementing preventative measures at those moments? I think we have to have the environment where it's okay to have a conversation about it. And, and you know, a, a lot of the work I do with high-performing teams kind of starts around, around that sort of, you know, we'll use some analogies like the canary down the coal mine kind of thing, you know. Uh, let's not look for stronger canaries. Let's actually figure out what's making the canary collapse. Those kinds of conversations. And when you bring it in into a sort of a metaphor and analogy like that, you can start these conversations happening. And then as people become sort of safer with each other, you can actually tend to find that the, the authenticity comes back, which kind of gives you the sense of safety that you've got. But it sort of comes down to 
somebody starting the conversation and it can be the leader and, and there are good ways and there are bad ways to sort of connect in with somebody to see how they're going. You're not yourself. You're not pitching in on meetings anymore as much as you used to. What's going on? That's you, you might as well jab them in the chest with your finger. You know what I mean? Because they're going to respond and react to that. I find, you know, uh, sharing using I statement type language, which sounds a bit woo woo. And I know I'm the guy kind of coming from Byron Bay and, and, and it's all sort of that stuff, right? And, and I'm not all about bath salts and chocolate. <laughs> I do sort of have a bit more clinical and evidence based behind me. But we but we still do the stuff like that. That makes a difference. And, and you know, it's a spoiler alert or an insider sort of track sort of statement to say that every psychiatrist, psychologist, counsel worker or sort of counselor or case worker, not necessarily every GP, but but people in those kind of caring professions are trained in, in having these statements that begin with what I've noticed about you, Shane, you know what I mean, um, are going to be far more inclusive and far more valuable. So, so it, and it, it's a sort of, it takes a while to sort of find your own language around it. But rather than me saying, Shane, you're not sort of pitching in as much as you, as you used to in meetings. And, and I thought you would have had something to say about that X, Y, Z. What's going on? You're going to be defensive, aren't you? You know, or you're going to be fearful that this is a performance conversation. Oh, I'm being bullied. Right. And so we'll head off down that path. Whereas if I'm coming to you and I'm saying, Shane, I'm, I'm asking you this because I'm just a little bit concerned uh, and, and I think I've noticed that that you're, you're maybe not as sort of connected as with the team as you usually are or or I, I feel like that maybe you're holding back and not reaching out with sort of part of the conversation. I'm just a little bit worried about you. That's what I've noticed. Is there is there something happening for you? And at least then what you're hearing is me saying that I've had an emotional response to what I've noticed in you, which is way more caring, right? Relationship counselling is all about this, right? It's about stop the you stuff. What are you noticing and what are you feeling? And if you start from there, you're going to have a much, much better response. And look, very often they'll, they'll go, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm, okay, well, I'll probably check in again in a week's time because I might still be concerned, But and, and just reach out if you want to have a chat. So that's a 30-second sort of interaction, but it creates a sense of safety. But we're not very good at doing these. I love that your first point of contact for all of this is if something's not working, before you get overwhelmed by all the possible scenarios that you could that you could choose to make things better, why not start with the conversation? It is always, and, and, and you're speaking my language because that is everything that I'm about, is start with a conversation. And I in Let's Talk Culture, I talk about those three, which is observation, impact, and input, which is, hey, this is what I, I noticed and I saw and this was the impact. And so, hey, I didn't get to hear your voice in that meeting and I miss your ideas and I I, I, look, I would love to hear that. I haven't heard them. And, you know, is there something that I can do to help and support? And what I loved about the way you framed yours is it, it was laced with empathy and it was so curious rather than judgmental. And obviously that's so much of your, your background in therapy as well. So I'm mindful in terms of our time that I'm, I'm kind of taking a bit of a flight back through the conversation. And what's out for me in this is that first and foremost is the way, not only just because of legislation changes, but the way that the world has changed, our world of work and personal has become even blurrier than ever before. As a leader, you can't ignore the importance of mental health and well-being in your team and psychological safety, all these things we talked about, because 
it, it is already taking place. And if we wait to get to that point where we're trying to react to it, we've, we've missed an opportunity. We are what you just said, the ambulance at the base of the cliff. But if we can work backwards and work into this preventative headspace and understand as a leader, you don't have to have the answers, but you can play a really crucial role in helping people by just providing that safe space and community and belonging, then we can start to shift things before they become big issues. Is that kind of an accurate reflection of our conversation we've had today? Absolutely, yeah. I think you're. I think you've nailed it. If I if I was to you know mix my metaphors and throw another one at you, it's a useful one that might be useful for for people who are watching this later on listening. It's a bit like the team captain that's running onto the pitch. If they're aware that someone on the team is starting to limp, you can adjust the game plan rather than playing a defensive game the whole time. You can adjust your game plan so that you can take steps to support that person. So maybe they're on the sub bench for the first 15 minutes and the physio gets to look at the ankle and see what's going on before you decide to take the action. I remember, I, I can't remember what the context was, but there was, uh, we were talking about some rugby teams and, and how they would, they would play a game with a broken arm because they didn't want to surrender up their jersey, right? And that was the kind of culture of the team. But, and, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the best out of your team. And I think we need to be sort of thinking like that now. Somebody in the team captain, if they had someone come up to them and say, my ankle's a bit weak, I'm going to give it 10 minutes, but keep an eye on me because I might not be able to play my best game. Okay, now we have a game plan that we can adjust accordingly. If I have to wait until that person's carried off the pitch with their sort of sprained ankle, then we're not going to get the result that the team needs. And not only that, you're the team captain, you're the leader of the team. You're not the physio and you're not the co the, the, the you know, you're not the, the, the doctor who's going to do any of the treatments. So don't think that you have to figure out what is causing the ankle to be sort of leap weak or something like that, or why the person is limping. You just need to know that they are and be able to recognize it early enough or them feel safe enough to let you know so that you can take the sort of steps you need to get them the support they need and to play your best game. That's probably, the, you know, that analogy probably sums up what we've been talking about. Mm, I really like that picture. Yeah, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? Because nobody expects the captain to go off and treat the, the injured ankle. And yet somehow leaders feel like they have to have all the answers. And you don't. God, you don't, you don't, you don't. I remember having a conversation with um, Michael Dixon, and we were talking a bit about this idea of a, of a musician and a band, which, again, is right in your kind of wheelhouse as well, is... He was saying that, you know, when you are playing in a band, sometimes you, you play this kind of bung note and if everyone else keeps playing what they need to play, then you stand out in amongst that, te that kind of team of teams. He's like, but if you play a bung note and everyone kind of goes with you and like all of a sudden you've, you've done this key change in the song and everyone kind of supports and the song changes, every, it, it, everyone who's listening to that goes, I didn't notice anything. I didn't seem like a mistake. And what, what I like about your picture of the, the team captain is this, if you can run on the field and you know someone's injured, you can adjust the gameplay around that. And no one would even know that that person was injured. It would just be part of the strategy of the play. And you can do that as a leader of a team. And you go, you know what? We need to support this person right now. And now the rest of the team can shoulder some of the burden so that down the track, they can get back on their feet, get strengthened, and then they can start shouldering the burden for somebody else. So it's that really nice kind of picture. It is. And and also, actually, uh, that would also uh, include somebody keeping an eye on the team captain, because the team captain would be the last one to talk about their sore ankle. And I find that with leaders all the time. It's incredible when you create that culture of safety and, and sort of connectedness. When you see a team 
look after their leader, it's magical. It really, really is. And, and, and it's something that leaders aren't kind of expecting very often. But when you see it happen, it really is. It's a magical thing to see. And it's, and, and it's how it should be. Yeah. And it's, and it's always very surprising for the leader when you do put your hand. I've, I've been in that situation where I put my hand up and said, you know what? I don't know how I'm going to carry all this. I'm really struggling. And I was amazed at how quickly the team were like, well, I wish we'd known earlier, uh, rather than going, huh, pull it together. You know, more often than not, we're, we're there and we're ready to help. And Mark, I know that some of the work that you do is, is helping teams to get into that place of performance by getting some of these foundations right. So that they're not building a team that is driving performance. It's, it's a team that is empowering people. And as a result, performance is this incredible outcome that comes. And you also help people at an individual level. And you, you mentioned your, your latest book, which I think is hilarious. The, the title is Up Yours, <laughs> The Pursuit of Radical Self-Care. Talk to us a little bit about the book. Well, it came from this whole sort of idea when, when we went into lockdown. The first time was kind of a bit of a novelty. We didn't mind it so much. I, uh, you're in Melbourne. I'm, I'm in Byron Bay. When we had you know, living in Byron Bay in lockdown where you had a five kilometer radius, there's nothing outside the five kilometers that you didn't want to get to anyway. So, so we had access to beaches and I was lovely. But people who went into lockdown in, in Melbourne several times, that sort of the line between work and home was massively blurred. And that, that we experienced that across the world. But, but what we found was all of the things that we used to do for ourselves were kind of had to change. And so, you know, we I speak about uh, self-care being sleep, diet and exercise. That's kind of the engine room stuff. That's the, that's the normal every day and hugely important, by the way. But what kind of gets lost often in self-care or team care conversations or well-being strategies in workplaces, etc. You know, we need to be more than the fruit on a Friday kind of thing, right? And so I talk about radical self-care. And by radical, I mean wide-ranging, thorough, from the roots, from the ground up. And, and so my book, uh, I, I, I tapped into not just the sleep, diet and exercise, but it's much more around sort of self-compassion, self-awareness, uh, these are really important elements to sort of self-care and being the best version of ourselves we can be. So the book does tap into things like, as I say, sleep, diet, exercise, but also boundaries, connection, relationships. What are we like with those? Taking time out, brain health. And sort of Dan Siegel talks about the healthy mind platter. I have a, a slightly different view on it, but but I talk about our brain is a, like an organ, just our kidneys are kidneying away and our livers are livering away and lungs are doing their thing and our brain's doing its thing. And we seem to think it's a computer that switches off and it's not. There's a whole host of stuff going on. Even when we sleep, it's actually really, really busy time for flushing it with to of toxins and stuff. So we, we talk about that and, and the importance of taking time out, etc. But then we, we tap into how do we look out for each other? Because that's an important part of our own self-care as well, is ensuring that we're looking out for others and they're looking out for us. We talk, I talk about resilience, which is usually a, as an ugh word in workplaces now. You know, resilience means they're just wanting to squeeze more out of me. And it, no, it's not actually. Resilience is about how we respond positively to, ad, to adversity. And I work with high-pressure teams. It's really, really important, not just for yourself, but for how you sort of help each other. And we talk about emotional intelligence and I'll talk about energy levels. We'll talk about civility in the workplace is kind of a new one now that's kind of cropping up a bit more in conversation. But we talk about self-awareness and empathy and, and, and working smarter, not harder. 
so it's a very broad brush idea of all of the things that we need to do to be self-aware, have some self-compassion, and, and obviously then the sort of normal elements of self-care as well. So yeah, up yours, the pursuit of radical self-care. <laughs> I love the title. Um, I'll put the, the details in the show notes of how people can get hold of that copy of that book. And obviously they can reach out with you, connect with you through your website, markbutler.com.au. Check out your LinkedIn. All of these will be in the show notes for people to find you. Uh, if, you if you're leading a team and you need some support as an individual, if you're working as a, a team and you want to bring Mark in to work with your team to up your performance of your team, but through the lens and the care of uh, mental health and well-being, then I think, Mark, you are the person that people should reach out and, to, and talk to. It's been such a delight to have you on the podcast. I know that there will be some people who listen to this who may be uh, feeling the weight of this conversation and need some additional support. I'm going to put some of the, the details for Lifeline and a whole bunch of other support services that you can reach out to if you need that. Um, but Mark, it's been such a delight to have the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Shane. I've really enjoyed it and I'm looking forward to our next um, karaoke. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.